here we're watching you out there on the restream as well as on the rumble rants we appreciate it all and we are having a a repeat performance by our friends dr ram yogendra and dr bruce patterson uh they have been studying long covid from way back in the dark days of covid and uh several different theories have emerged of what's causing it and as a result of doing these studies they have learned a great deal about not just covid but some of the other fatigue chronic inflammatory type syndromes that we have uh perhaps made less of uh, in medicine than we should have over the years. The old chronic fatigue syndrome or chronic Epstein-Barr, we always sort of had a passing understanding that something could go on with some of these illnesses, but the very specifics, one of the things that have come out of COVID is uh, more insight into the biochemistry of these phenomena. Let's get right to it. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. all being here and uh let's get to it our guest dr ram yogendra an anesthesiologist he also has a background in public health and uh, he got interested in the long covid syndrome well actually he got interested uh in uh, cytokine activation and the, and the ranty's pathway being uh interrupted by some of the medication that was being tossed around as a solution to that and of course, Dr. Patterson is a researcher on the effect of viral pathogenesis and the immune, immune system. He was uh, very, very active in the pursuit of HIV and HIV treatments. Uh, guys, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Dr. Drew. Yeah, it's great to be back. That was the name. That was the name of that medication. I, I, was trying, I was trying to pull it out in the intro, but I couldn't remember if it was Lorolimab. And and although I just want to review a little history for a second, although that looked very promising, and I remember going to great lengths to getting it for some people that were in desperate circumstance, it it didn't it didn't sort of take its place as a routine sort of treatment for cytokine activation, did it? Well, I think uh, the 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 fact is the CCR five um, pathway, which is what's blocked by lorelimab, uh, um, is actually. Uh, as we found in long COVID, now uh, post-treatment Lyme disease, uh, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia. So I don't think it's a shortcoming of the pathway. Uh, I think there was, you know, some issues with, you know, the particular offering. But um, by no means is that class of drugs or the pathway that uh, CCR5 antagonists block um, not important. In fact, it's critical in tempering uh, the immune system without being an immunosuppressive. Yeah, no, I remember the whole, uh, when we first met Ram, he gave us a disquisition on the Ranty system. Yeah, that was, that was back in two years ago. And, and I think it was a lot of our friends and colleagues were, were in the hospital and, and that's how I got linked up with Dr. Patterson was uh, so much we didn't know at the time. And um, but thankfully, a lot of them made it through and, and we're kind of, you know, I don't want to say COVID is over. I think there's a lot of debate. Uh, obviously, cases are rising and there's some discussion about that. But, 
you know, it was very interesting summer of 2020. Um, I had friends of mine that were coming down with what we are now calling long COVID or post COVID complications and linked up again with Dr. Patterson back in summer of 2020. So we were recognizing it back then. Um, when mm-hmm. quite frankly, I think the medical community was still, and understandably so, still trying to end up sort of the middle of the, the worst part of the pandemic. But I think now what's, we're really shifting from the discussion we have from 2020, where we're really talking about the after effects of the post-COVID uh, complications. And you're seeing there are two sides of the argument. There's one group that is talking about, look, um, COVID is not really a big thing. I think there was an op-ed article in the Wall Street Journal, uh, Dr. Macaray. Um, I think he brought some valid points. Um, also a lot of things that we disagree with. And then there's another group that wants to call everything sort of post-March 2020 long COVID. So I think part of the, the, the debate and the discussion is defining what exactly is long COVID. Um, and I think that's why one of the things we've done is in the past two years of studying this is our, like in, any sort of research and anything in medicine, we, our, our understanding has evolved. Um, we have a greater understanding now than we did, let's say, a year ago when we were last speaking with you. And I think today's discussion is really going to center on all the new findings, um, on all the etiology and the, and the pathophysiology that is driving long COVID. And how's your friend doing, the other anesthesiologist that uh, had that terrible, terrible ICU experience? He okay? Yeah, Dr. Purcell's doing doing well. Um, Still has some lingering effects uh, from from the acute phase of COVID, but he's doing well. And yeah, I'll I'll send him your regards. Thank you. Please. And and, and you guys actually tested me because I had long collar, long Hulse type syndrome. And if you remember, I had elevated VEGF at the time. Uh, Bruce is smiling. Go ahead. Well, I mean, elevated VEGF is is one of the most common findings in, in long COVID. But I, I think my take over the last co- couple of years, as Ram said, we were, you know, in the beginning, if not the beginning of, of long COVID, um, we, we found this series of symptoms. And of course, now those symptoms are widely publicized, fatigue, post-exertional malaise, brain fog. And I remember an early interview from a year, year and a half ago where we came up with a diagnostic that had a long hauler index and we could actually, uh, you know, track, you know, response to therapy and if they're getting better. And the, the other physician said, well, we don't need diagnostics for long COVID because we know what the symptoms are. Well, now we know that nothing could be further from the truth. Those symptoms uh, are indeed um, found in long COVID, but they're also found in post-treatment Lyme disease. They're also found in chronic fatigue syndrome. They're found in fibromyalgia. They're found in some individuals post-vaccination. So they're very nonspecific. And we've really focused on a new algorithm that's been uh, in our use for the last six months where um, we can actually determine uh, with whether, you know, this is pure long COVID, Lyme, uh, MECFS, or fibromyalgia so that um, they could be treated appropriately because those symptoms are not differentiating between those groups. And I think that's why there's a lot of confusion because people are presenting to their physicians and say, I have these symptoms, I must have long COVID. Uh, and sometimes they've never been infected by COVID. Sometimes when you talk to them by telemedicine, we find out, oh, I've had these symptoms for five years and they happen to get worse during COVID. And that's that tips our um scale over towards Lyme or, or chronic fatigue syndrome. So, you know, there's uh, a lot's been learned uh, over the last few years, but it's been greatly aided by 
our, our efforts with uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence to uh, really distinguish between these very similar chronic uh, inflammatory uh, conditions. What do we do with the uh, finding in one of the recent publication that a majority of people with long COVID have mental health diagnosis? Oh, that's that's a great point, um, Dr. Du, because what we've found is that many of our, you know, 30,000 registered um, patients have anxiety or depression. Due to, and, and the fact is, um, it's very much related to vascular inflammation because when these individuals, when we cool off the immune system, um, a lot of that resolves. Some doesn't, but some, a lot of it does. And, you know, we, we're starting to treat more uh, of these patients yep. who have this interesting combination of a antecedent infection, say with strep or herpes and OCD or other mental health um, diagnosis. They always thought that PANDAS was caused by autoantibodies that cross the blood-brain barrier, but not only has autoantibodies, inflammatory components, so that when we treat both the autoantibodies and uh, the chronic inflammatory uh, elevations using um, some of our uh, approaches, they get better and they stop having ticks. They stop having uh, a that condition. Inflammation and mental health, I think, are intimately related um, and have Hey, I'm going to interrupt. Um, Caleb, can we help uh, Dr. Patterson with that? Yeah, it's, uh, he has issue? a. There, there's some connection issues over on his end, but everybody else is yeah. clear right now. Yes. Can we do something to help improve that, do you think? No, it, it has to, to do with, his, Grand, with his connection. Yeah, you can talk to, to Dr. Okay. Yo for now. Yeah. So, 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 uh, as far as inflammatory goes, you know, uh, we're, people are starting to look at the, uh, the uh, clinical mechanism mechanism of action of some of the antidepressants might actually be through the sigma one receptor and through an anti-inflammatory type mechanism I, I suspect well that's why fluvoxamine was one of the original and early sort of treatment uh attempts i i had a great response to it personally have you guys continued to use that medicine yes we, it's it's still it's still in our arsenal um, I think it also depends on the patient. Um, I think that's that's the important thing. I think a lot of times you you hear these discussions from from patients, physicians, uh, a lot of things in the media, but finding that one magic drug for long COVID or post COVID complications. And I feel like we we should probably maybe start calling it less of long COVID and kind of using post or past or post post COVID complications because long COVID makes it seem like you know, I, I don't think it takes into account some of the other things that we're seeing, the reactivation of some of the herpes family viruses, the vector-borne illnesses, um, the MECFS exacerbation that, that we're picking up. Um, it's very interesting. Some of these patients had no idea. Um, and you sort of dig into it and we see some machine learning, some patterns, and we'll ask some questions. Well, are there any, any time in your, in your life that you had unexplained bouts of fatigue or 
um, exhaustion, post-exertional malaise. And it's funny, sometimes patients like, yeah, you know, there's like a two, three, year, two, three month period um, where when I was like in my 20s, I, I kind of got really bad. And then I got better for a couple of years and now it's sort of kicked back in. So it, it's it's the etiology and the pathophys is, is quite frankly all over the place. So to to go back to your question, Dr. Drew, about fluvoxamine and some of the SSRIs, yes, but it's also it it's also varies by patient. So you know, I know a lot of times we talk a lot about CCR five antagonists and then some of the use of statins. And what we don't want is people just automatically assuming, well, this is the magic bullet. Um, I think the very in- interesting thing that we're trying to do is sort of um, I, I think it's very important for patients to know that there's something wrong with them. But the question is, what is what is causing their symptoms? Um, and I think it doesn't necessarily mean that they're making it up. I think for many patients, when you say it's not necessarily sort of long COVID, but I think it's something else. Um, I think we have to be very clear to them that we are acknowledging that there is something wrong with them, um, but we're just trying to find etiology. So a lot of times what we're doing is actually doing further testing. Um, I think in the past, like six to 12 months, we've really started to, you know, patients come in and say, okay, I want to take X, Y, Z. It was like, wait, hold on a second. We need to do more, more further testing. And, and just because um, all of these, some of these symptoms manifested after COVID doesn't necessarily mean it's all long COVID. We still have to use proper, um, you know, our, our basis of medicine. We've got to rule some of the common things out. So a lot of times patients, you know, will have- So walk, walk me through, walk, walk me through how you're, how you're doing some of that and what the, what the sort of- um, serological profiles are, or whatever other testing you're using to to determine one kind of chronic fatigue. What do we? What's the general category we've been calling this? Chronic fatigue? What, is there a general category? Um, Doctor, can can we pull up that? There's a PDF I sent you. It's sort of um, if, if we can sort of pull it out, we can sort of talk through sort of uh, kind of the overall schematic. I think that might be helpful. Yeah, this is this is sort of what our sort of a rough diagram, and I think patients that have and, and physicians, researchers that have spoken to me over the past six months will be sort of familiar with this. If we look at symptoms, the question is, what is driving these symptoms, right? I mean, the, the, the brain fog, the fatigue, some of the, something called POTS, um, you know, a lot of times people, you know, incorrectly attributing it purely just to cardiac when it's more of an autonomic dysfunction, um, dysautonomias. I mean, there's over 200 symptoms that are being described in, in long COVID. And I think that that list gets bigger and bigger. Um, if you look at just on symptoms, you're just really just putting a bandaid on it. And what we're trying to do is sort of tease things out um, and sort of understand what is causing. Uh-oh. What a- Uh-oh. What a- Uh-oh. What happened there? Well, we had a little bit of a technical problem, so let's. Uh, I'm sure Kayla uh, will get right on that. <laughs> Dr. Yep. Dr. Bruce just joined the show from yeah. Dr. Yogendra's link by accident. <laughs> so I, it looks like they're. So he, he knocked just, him he's, off. He's coming back in. Yeah, that's what it looks like happened. <laughs> that's great. Oops. All right. So, patience, everybody. So I, we're, we're about to get to the part where he figures out how to tease out all these symptoms into different categories. And I still don't know what, what we call the syndrome. There's, you know, there's an, over, um, you know, syndrome just means a constellation of symptoms while a diagnosis is a constellation of symptoms with a common pathophysiology and a common genetic heritage, you know, common environmental influence. Go ahead, Bruce. So there's three things that we, we look at from our, um, our diagnostic report. We look at uh, the pattern of inflammation. So we have three marks: vascular inflammation, 
Um, and then these other ones will determine whether, you know, for instance, it's Lyme, like interleukin-13. We never see interleukin-13 in long COVID. We only see that in Lyme. Mm. So interferon gamma plus interleukin-13, interferon gamma plus interleukin-8, those make us suspicious for Lyme. And then we reflex to Lyme testing to see uh, if indeed that is the underlying etiology. But then we'll still go on and treat the vascular inflammation because that's a, a new discovery of ours where um, vascular inflammation may be the underlying uh, cause of symptoms in chronic Lyme. So can I can I zero in a little bit on the the inflammation, you know, vascular inflammation? So I've seen now, uh, you know, a lot of illness, uh, and I've seen now a number of path specimens that show quite literally an endotheliitis. And it seems that the vaccine can cause this. It seems like something to do with the spike protein because the vaccine seems to cause something similar as well. What, what is the mechanism of that? Is it is it, uh, it is it a you know a macrophage interaction with the you know again it's I'm so used to you know inflammation of the endothelium and, and the the lining being somehow lipid and macrophage mediated. Is that is that the case here? That that's absolutely. Uh... Correct. And we identified that a year and a half ago. And that we found the S1 protein of SARS-CoV-2 in these pro-inflammatory non-classical monocytes whose sole job is to bind to blood vessels through the fractalkine, fractalkine receptor pathway. And, uh, and we think that may also be at play in Lyme by carrying the cell wall of the bacteria for years, if not decades, because these reservoirs, um, when they're presenting antigen, uh, they short circuit their uh, apoptosis or death program. In other words, they don't die. Uh, most people respond to me and say, oh, these monocytes have a lifespan of a week. Well, yes, when they're normal, um, they're pro-inflammatory, they bind to blood vessels, and the strategy of our therapy, and this goes back to the early 2000s atherosclerosis literature, is solely blocking these cells from binding to the blood vessels and relieving the vascular inflammation and the platelet activation uh, that's caused by this endotheliitis. And I think we were one of the first to coin the phrase endotheliitis because the endothelium makes this protein called fractalkine, which allows these pro-inflammatory uh, macrophages and monocytes to, to bind. Now, you had seen that in the CNS last time I talked to you. Are you seeing that more widely distributed? And again, I want to make sure I get the terms right. It's, it's the non-classical monocytes? That's right. So there's three subpopulations yeah. of monocytes classical, intermediate, and non-classical. Um, intermediate monocytes were the ones that were infectable by HIV. We showed in 2009 that they're infectable by hepatitis C. Uh, they've been shown to carry dengue fever and Zika virus into the brain because they cross the blood-brain barrier. All of this is fitting in a nice narrative that explains a lot of what's going on in long COVID. And it's based on uh, you know years of research um, some of it by my lab, some by, by others, but 
you know, if you go back and look at the atherosclerosis literature in the 2000s, that is where the key lies for long COVID. And our machine learning and AI, in the absence of any knowledge of that literature, came up with um, this panel and this set of markers that was indicative of endotheliitis. So tell us about that. What is that, what is that panel? So, I mean, that's part of our panel. We see elevations in this protein called SCD40L, which is the first protein uh, engaged in the thrombosis pathway. We see CCL5 or Rantes, um, which is produced with SCD40L by uh, activated platelets, which bind to the, and of course, when you have inflamed endothelium, it cytokines interleukin. By the way, our AI I picked out as so the position told us to get long COVID and what was in the literature for something completely different. Um, and that's what's so fascinating uh, about this story. And, you know, we, we identified it as a major protein that's produced um, inflammatory protein in long COVID and others now. And VEGF not only promotes new blood vessel growth, but it also causes neuropathy. So patients come in, fingers and extremities, and as soon as you start lowering the VEGF, that's when they start to see relief in some of the neurologic symptoms. All right, Yo, uh, I wonder if you have any of the, anything on the slides that will recapitulate some of this. Want to go back to your slides? Yeah, if you, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just sort of recap. Sorry, Bruce, I got cut yeah. off. Um, so as I was just mentioning earlier about the symptoms, uh, and this is sort of the working, um, kind of our working hypothesis, and, and some of the work that, that we've done and, and continue to do. So if we just focus just on symptoms, as I mentioned earlier, I think before we cut off, um, we're not gonna understand the etiology of what is driving symptoms. Okay, fatigue, uh, post-exertional malaise, brain fog, POTS, all of that. I mean, you can, there's a, a whole multitude of, of chronic illnesses that cause the same symptoms. So by treating that, we, and I think it is important to just treat symptoms too. I mean, patients want immediate or at least, uh, you know, telling them to wait for four or six, you know, eight weeks to get better or start to see improvement. I think for many of them, they'd much rather feel better within a couple of days or, or within a week. So I, I think, you know, we can't just completely uh, rule out treating just symptoms, but I think it has to go sort of hand in hand in what we suspect is the etiology. And I think that's sort of the, the conundrum um, right now is sort of how do, we, how do we tackle this? So I think our group really looks at, yes, addressing symptoms, um, but also try to find the underlying cause. And as Bruce was uh, talking about, um, what we use is machine learning and AI to pick up patterns. Um, single solitary lab values are, you know, quite frankly, very meaningless in, in clinical medicine. We sort of have to look at different markers. We look at, uh, speak to the patient, our clinical examination, history of the patient, and then we have to do further diagnostic testing. I mean, that's the, that's the basis of clinical medicine. So what we do is we look at patterns. Um, Bruce's team has, and Intel DX have developed the uh, immune subset testing, which allows us to look to see if the S1 protein is uh, from the virus is present in those um, monocytes, as, as you and Dr. Patterson were just discussing. 
interestingly enough, um, the you know you'll see on the on the bottom of that graph we have the uh, persistent uh, post vaccine group, uh, which unfortunately can be controversial and and you know I, but but it is important to talk about these patients because um, we have not done any prevalence studies um, where we can't even comment on rare or not rare or anything like that. We're just looking at mechanisms. And what was very interesting is we, we saw a group of patients, probably I would say spring of 2021, that they received the vaccines and had some persistent complications. Now, we expect within the first week or two that most patients, you know, going to have the fever, chills, sort of an inflammatory response. But these are patients at least 30 days after. Um, and we one of the patients that we tested that's in our paper was uh, 245 days after vaccination. We detected the S1 protein, sequenced it, um, and we found the S1 protein, mutant S1 and S2 proteins in, in the post-vaccine patients. So, um, you know, we can't necessarily comment on it. I know certain groups want to make grandiose statements uh, and people want to make grandiose statements, and that's their prerogative. But uh, we're just sticking to the science um, and we're saying, look, this is what we found. We do need to acknowledge and do more studies on these patients. But we found the S1 protein in them. Um, then there's another group of patients. They had long, they had COVID, got symptoms, got vaccinated. They were told by, you know, there's a lot of media coverage about a year and a half ago that getting the vaccine was, quote unquote, going to help you with your long COVID symptoms. And unfortunately, what that ended up doing was people, a lot of people with long so post-COVID complications ended up getting the vaccine and having massive setbacks. So we have that group of patients. And then we found another group of patients that they have, they have the S1 protein, but we using machine learning and uh, the modeling that we have, our algorithms, we started to detect reactivation of some of the vector-borne illnesses, um, picking up some possibly EBV, CMV, HSV, the herpes family viruses. Another group of patients, uh, the MECFS exacerbation, um, they had some they had undiagnosed MECFS. We we can we can we can pick this up, and that research was very interesting because we were using CCR5 antagonists and and the fractal kind like the statins, and there was probably about I would say about twenty thirty percent of the patients they were not having the response um, like we wanted it to, and we sort of pulled them out and we looked at them individually. And very interesting. We also started looking at patients with Lyme, and they were not never had COVID, but they were post treatment Lyme disease. Uh, also looked at MECFS patients with known history of MECFS, started looking at EBV, HSV, all a bunch of different groups of patients, and then mapping it out. And then we started to overlap it with our long COVID patients. And it was very interesting. We started to see a lot of sort of the overlap with, let's say, uh, Lyme uh, caused by Borrelia or Bartonella. Uh, we started seeing EBV along with along with long COVID. And so, so it's it so, so let me interrupt you. Let me interrupt. It, it, to me, it sounds like some major alteration of T cell function, and I've started to hear that 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 is beginning to be documented. And so, a is that true, and what is the specific mechanism there? And and b is the persistence of the S one spike a necessary component uh, in developing these things, or could anybody develop it? Yeah. So the answer to both those questions is very um, interesting. We published way back in 2020 that acute COVID makes patients uh, highly immunosuppressed. And we may have talked to HIV AIDS and its effects on the CD4 T cells. In COVID, it's the CD8 T cells. We showed that the numbers of the CD8 um, cells in acute COVID 
they there was immune exhaustion and it all they also didn't produce grand enzyme a they're med killing all cancer cells and virally infected cells so yes there was uh there was supreme you know immunosuppression and that's what people don't realize acute covid causes immunosuppression of the chronic if Lyme is still capable of replicating, that may replicate and exacerbate uh, Lyme symptoms. Um, it, you know, frankly, uh, it's a mess. And I think people don't realize the effects on uh, chronic that may still linger uh, in patients. And I think that's a really important because of COVID. it may be exacerbation of MECFS caused by EV we spoke of. It may be Lyme is rearing its head in patients who were inadequately treated for acute Lyme. But the one thing that's those Lyme, MECFS, fibromyalgia, is this endotheliitis. And I think that's where we've had uh, tremendous success treating post-treatment Lyme disease and in many of the cases of MECFS, although MECFS tends to be much more multifactorial in terms of the antecedent infection than, of course, Lyme or, um, you know, um, long COVID. So, uh, but, and- but the bottom line is they share this endotheliitis. And when we resolve that, that's when they start to feel better because what Ram didn't mention is that in our latest, you know, fingers crossed, it's it's moving towards finally getting out. Is that we correlated the cytokine or inflammatory marker elevations with symptoms? Our biostatisticians did an amazing job because that allows us to do precision targeted treatment because we know, for instance. Interleukin-2 and TNF-alpha are so strongly correlated with fatigue. The p-values are 10 to the minus fifth, meaning uh, highly statistically. SCD40L and VEGF are are highly correlated with the neurosymptoms, the dysautonomia, et cetera, so that we know when a patient has a certain symptom complex and they have elevated um, inflammatory markers of one kind, if we target those with drugs, and what people don't know um, is CCR5 antagonists, they've already been shown in the literature to lower VEGF. They've already been shown in the literature to, and we did, showed it too, they lower interleukin-6. It lowers TNF-alpha because it, um, it, 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 it changes the phenotype of activated macrophages, which produce IL-6 and TNF-alpha. So, CCR5 antagonists shut that down. It also lowers what we found uh, is SCD40L, um, a- as well as statins affecting SCD40L um, and, and VEGF. So we very targeted approach uh, to first treating the chronic inflammation with the assumption, now that we have the correlations, that by lowering those um, inflammatory proteins, we'll see, um, we'll see improvement or resolution of the symptoms. And it'll be permanent because we're actually addressing the cause 
uh, of those symptoms as opposed to just treating the symptoms themselves. Uh, Ram, you want to go back to your slides? And I do want to hear a little bit about treatment. And before I do go on, to, well, actually, before you go back to slides, MECFS is chronic fatigue, essentially, um, syndrome, right? Uh, right. And uh, the do we have a any concern that this CD8 suppression is contributing to the all-cause mortality increase we're seeing these days? Quite possibly it can, because the numbers I see, uh, you know, the percentage of CD8 should be around 30% of your, uh, of your lymphocytes. Um, we're seeing things in the teens, uh, in the early days of acute COVID, I was seeing single digits. Um, and I hadn't mm -hmm. seen lymphocyte subset numbers that low, like I said, since I was working on HIV AIDS. And yeah, some people are talking about whether or not acute COVID causes cancer. And I'm not going to address that because I'm just saying the CD4 and CD8 T cells are part of the uh, immune response against mostly viral infections and cancer. So um, it's something that, um, that causes some concern uh, on my part although we have absolutely no data in our own hands. Uh, I, I have a hunch. I, I, I had a hunch about the endotheliitis very early on because I, you know, I could tell when I experienced it myself yeah. and, and there was quick early evidence that the, the smell problem was a microvascular thing. Um, and I have a hunch that it's going to turn out that existent cancers are spreading more quickly in the face of the CD8. It doesn't cause cancer, doesn't, probably doesn't, maybe doesn't affect cancer surveillance so much as once a tumor is established, boom, it can explode with CD8 suppression. That, that's my hunch. Well, you know, I, I share that concern, let's put it that way. Although, like I said, you know, it's too early and, and we certainly don't have data to prove that, but um, it's a concern. So Rob, do you wanna go back to your slides? Sure, we can we can get that. I think the other ones, um, you know, Bruce can sort of jump in there, kind of the ones from our papers. But um, yeah, Bruce, you want to you want to talk about um, this one? This is one of Bruce's favorite uh, slides over here. Yeah, I, I love these slides because um, uh, this is you know from our first paper where we identified the symptoms for long COVID um, at the same time as others were starting to come out with long COVID symptoms. And of course, there's fatigue, brain fog, um, post-exertional malaise, ringing in the ears, etc. And then then the red blobs are the symptoms of Lyme or post-treatment Lyme disease. So they're, mm. they're almost uh, identical. Um, and, and then, of course, when we looked at more and more Lyme patients, we started seeing this endotheliitis pattern in, in Lyme um, that we're now uh, addressing uh, therapeutically. What, what, is, what are you guys doing? What are, you, what, what are the therapeutic interventions? Let, let's stick with COVID, post-COVID, long COVID. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the same, you know, the, the, the basic two, um, we're actually, you know, uh, really excited because we're a about to launch a randomized clinical trial, you know, in 2023 uh, in long COVID with this combination. But 
Maraviroc, which is a CCR5 antagonist, um, we use because it, it really stabilization of these inflammatory cells all over the body. Number one, low L6, all the and and Rantes for that matter. But uh, interestingly, it also reaches away from a pro-inflammatory phenotype. So it's a great um, three-pronged attack on inflammation without, if you were to immunosuppress with steroids or some other drugs, you would, you would be contributing to this vicious cycle, which is the vicious cycle we're trying to break of infection, inflammation, symptoms, infection, inflammation, symptoms. And, and then the statins are the ones that prevent these cells from binding to the blood vessels and causing endotheliitis. If these cells can't bind through the fractalkine receptor, they die apoptosis or death program, and they die. And we have a team um, uh, assay that we've launched it because we can look at patients over time on therapy and see the cells and go down over time. And like I said, these non-classical monocytes and intermediate monocytes are really a garbage can uh, for virus and, and for uh, bacteria and carrying proteins uh, all over the body and causing inflammation well after you think you've treated uh, the organism. And like I said, we think that's at play in Lyme. Um, and we think that's certainly in play in, uh, in long COVID with the S1. And now more and more papers are coming out, uh, you know, basically uh, corroborating our early findings of uh, S1 being involved in the pathogenesis of long COVID. And, and persistent S1 is a necessary and sufficient, well, necessary ingredient? I think it's a part of it. I think the other part of it is getting the levels of these pro-inflammatory monocytes back to normal. Uh, and there may be some disconnect between those two. But um, obviously, lowering the number of pro-inflammatory monocytes that can bind to um, the blood vessels is a key strategy and, and even better if they're, if they're carrying S1. And can people still come to covidlonghaulers.com and get access to you guys? Or are you guys full up? No, we, um, we just launched in Australia. You know, so we're scaling. We're, we're live in the, in, in the EU. We're live in the UK. Um, we're live in Brazil. And uh, we just launched on Monday in, uh, in Australia, obviously with large um, lab partners. But in fact, there's a big announcement with SynLab in in uh, the EU and Brazil, um, Helios in Australia. So, um, and then Igenix we're partnering with in the United States are one of the le global leaders in Lyme testing. That's how, how closely we think long COVID and Lyme are related uh, to the point where we've, um, we've had a great um, relationship and, and now a great collaborative um, uh, relationship with Igenics so that, you know, the minute we see a pattern that's suggestive of Lyme, you know, we can, um, we can, uh, 
then go right to Lyme screening, which is uh, really exciting. Uh, and so people were asking, how do I, you know, if I, my primary care person will not listen to me, what do I do? So go to covidlonghaulers.com. Guys, I got to wrap up in about five minutes. I'm going to take some calls uh, after we wrap here. Uh, Dr. Yogendra, you want to, any last thoughts you want to push in here? You guys have done a great job of reviewing and updating because this is fascinating where you are now from where I last spoke to you. Yeah, I think we, you, you're, you know, Dr. Patterson just really hit it on the nail right now. Um, you know, we, we've mapped everything out. We're continuing to map and, and sort of get an understanding. Uh, we, we still believe that a lot of the sort of, if you want to call it the pure PASC or that long COVID, um, you, you know, sort of, I don't want to say classical definition because we're still trying to define what long COVID is, but you get a COVID infection, you develop new onset symptoms in and you don't have sort of any medical history from previous medical history. Um, we're very confident it's still the S1 uh, protein that's that's driving a lot of the endotheliolitis and the vascular inflammation, and, and we're studying the use of CCR5 antagonists and, and fractalkine. But again, not everyone sort of has that. Um, you know, it's very interesting. You know, Dr. Patterson didn't we didn't have time to mention this, but but the kids. You know, we we're working with uh, pediatricians around the around the country, around the world, and. The kids are responding really, really, really fast within four to six weeks, uh, and that's because they have a, mm. you know, I, I make a joke that they're kind of pure-blooded because they haven't been exposed to a lot of the pathogens as, as many of the adults are. So I think that um, that's kind of like another interesting uh, group of patients population that we we do do need to continue studying. Um, but if anyone is interested, we collaborate. Our our whole model is we we're just basically data analysts. We're just collecting data. Uh, we work with uh, your physicians, um, your researchers, your specialists, and um, sort of work in tandem with 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 those specialists. So um, yeah, covidlonghaulers.com, we got an amazing team, uh, amazing collaboration with global partners, uh, global labs, global um, biostatisticians. So um, yeah, I mean, the next couple of weeks, we're going to be putting up more, and academics, absolutely. We have a couple of institutions in the United States that are using some of our protocols and the assays. Um, so we're super, you know, we're really excited. Uh, but we still have a lot of work to do. And, um, you know, hopefully in our next conversation, we'll have more data to share. Yeah, I feel I feel like it's coming into focus. You, you know what I mean? I, I Last time we spoke, I, I felt like some of these ideas were there, but it was much more of a, of a fog. Uh, and now there's clarity on so many of these things. Yeah, we, we really have is. to be careful about not... I was just going to say, we, we just have to be Yo. careful about not politicizing... Um, politicizing long COVID, you know, there's, there's one group of, you know, I see the discussions Oh, long COVID is because we want to have the lockdowns and the masks and people are, are scaremongering. Another group of, you know, another group out there is saying, well, long COVID doesn't exist. It's all because of the vaccine. You, it, it's getting so politicized and it's not everything in medicine is, there's no, there's no conflict lines, no black and white. It's, we just look at data. We just look at different things and, and we don't let our biases come into play here. And I think it's really important just as a medical community, as a, as the general public to keep that in mind in these discussions. Oh yeah. Just, just, I, like I've been saying for quite some time is we used to call outlying opinions that we disagreed with interesting. That's all we called it. They were called misinformation. They were just called interesting. <laughs> Thank you. And made me think about things, made me clarify my own position, but <laughs> you don't have to agree with everybody. And Bruce, last thoughts. Well, again, I think, I think I oh. think Ram's right. I think we're collaborating, we can and sharing the information. Uh, I mean, people shouldn't forget that we are academics ourselves. You know, um, 
coming out of, you know, I came out of Northwestern and, and, and Stanford and, you know, it, it, those are our peers that, um, you know, that, that we're talking to and, and, and you know what, the, the, the advantage of being in a, in, in cell DX and being in a corporation is our ability, number one, to scale quickly and disseminate. You know, we just got CEIVD, which is European approval for our long COVID test. We're eventually going to take that through with our drugs in the United States to get uh, approval, not only of the companion diagnostic, but also of the, the drug regimen. So we're going through it in all the, all the straight and narrow paths that, that, that we go through as an industry through all the regulatory bodies. And, um, but I think it's our ability to, to get disseminate, uh, which I think is, uh, is exciting for us to reach more patients. Well, gentlemen, I thank you always for coming by here and for the way, for the work you're doing and B for updating us. So, uh, again, I suspect you'll have some more people stopping by with COVID long haulers. See you guys soon. Thanks so much, Dr. Drew. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks guys. And what what we will do here is I'm, of course, out on Twitter spaces, and I see some of you already have your hands up. Uh, I will take a little break, and when we come back, I will take your calls. Want to give the gift that keeps on giving? Genucel Skincare keeps everyone on your holiday list looking young and refreshed. And who doesn't need that type of luxury, especially over the holiday season? Genucel has so many products that Susan and I love. Genucel's XV Moisturizer locks in moisturizer on top of the serums, making dry spots a thing of the past, especially great with the colder climate and all the dryness of our skin, right? And with Genucel's Immediate Effect 2 eye cream, you can see the results in as little as 12 hours, guaranteed or your money back. Susan loves Genucel's DFS Vitamin C Serum, the new Deep Firming Serum, as well as the Hyaluronic with C and Lactic Acid which hydrates your skin and makes fine lines a thing of the past while hopefully preventing future wrinkles from forming. I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to Genucel, I was so happy because it's so affordable and it works great. I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time, and I'm so excited because it's actually working. Take advantage of amazing holiday savings by going to genucel.com, and you will get 60% off with a special holiday stocking stuffer when you subscribe to my favorites package at genucel.com slash Drew, and all orders are upgraded to free shipping for the rest of the holiday season. We will get it there quickly. Use code Drew at checkout for an extra 10% off your entire order. That is genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash Drew. Economic turmoil has a lot of people wondering what our government will do next. Will it be more wasteful spending, higher taxes? How do you protect your hard-earned savings? The answer could be gold. Gold is the world's oldest, most proven form of currency. It's there when inflation soars and when other assets go sideways. And that's why Birch Gold is thrilled to introduce a new product that reimagines gold as currency, the gold back. This month, you'll get a free gold back for every $5,000 purchased when you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a precious metals IRA with Birch Gold by December 22nd, Susan's birthday, incidentally. Birch Gold will help you own gold and silver in a tax-sheltered account. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew to claim your free info kit on gold and then talk to one of their precious metals specialists. 
Reminder, I do not give financial advice. This is not financial advice, but you can go to Verge Cold, and with every purchase you make before December 22nd, you'll get a free gold pack. This is a stocking stuffer just in time for Christmas. Once again, visit birchgold.com slash Drew. Protect your savings with gold today. And welcome, everybody. Let's get to the calls over on the Twitter spaces. Uh, let's get Andrew up here. Andrew, go right ahead. Yeah, we've got him. But he's Hello? Still, there you are. What's happening? Hey, hi, Dr. Drew. This Andrew? was very surprising. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, this is maybe a little bit of a, 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 a out of the random area, but um, with all the new data coming out of a lot of different areas that we've all been affected by the COVID and the lockdowns, has there been any look at family estrangements and the data that there's just been a lot of people that have yeah. chosen it just different sides. Yeah. Well, but I mean, that was already going on through the whole Trump era. Right. So I, sure. I don't know how much different that is, but I have seen, hmm, I've seen people talking about that. I can't, I can't quote it off the top of my head about essentially domestic violence, domestic abuse and strife in, in, in a home system and home setting. And it's of course up. It's up all over the place. Right. Whether or not it has a political sort of a core to it or the politics is just an excuse, I, I don't know. I suppose my question then, my like question into that is, how do people reconcile <laughs> with something that is seems to just be moving and just riling people up? Meaning, yeah. meaning the information that's coming through. Yeah, the yeah. Odd, the oddest thing is that medical information has a political tone, which is the oddest thing in the world. Uh, it as you heard Dr. Yogendra just talking about. I mean, that's just has no place. It doesn't even make sense that people who just learned how to pronounce a term have an opinion right. about it that day or the next day. And so, right. I I think um, I think the important thing is I. Maybe I'm not sure this is the best advice, but uh, to be avoidant of this material and to try to stay in, you know, really what's important in a relationship. So much of what is going on is projection, right? Right. And so if if you can address projection with sort of a calm uh, query, let's say a calm uh, what's called wonderment, like. You know, why do I wonder why you would think that about me? That's nowhere near what I'm thinking. Or I wonder why, mm. you know, why that troubles you so much. Uh, don't get into never the of course, never get into arguing the points of view. You know, the the literature is very clear on that. You cannot change people's minds. And even if you change their mind in one narrow area, they sometimes will double down in adjacent areas that uh, end mm. up being kind of the same. Wow. Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Right, I've been you bet. a fan for a very long time. All right, Andrew. Good luck. <laughs> my goodness. Uh, this is uh, Christy, who is our uh, biochemist. Let's get Christy up here. Christy, you were talking about low-dose naltrexone on the uh, restream. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I feel like we're going to do this Pulp Fiction style, and I'll explain things and then send you the study material okay so i'm <laughs> so i'm presenting it backwards there's been uh several people on twitter that reached out to me after i was posting about low dose naltrexone and for those listening uh 
PharmD was my first path in school, even though I didn't complete a uh, long story, got in an accident, but I worked for a compounding pharmacy and then with two in the area. And we were seeing some things that are not being addressed from what I'm hearing of people who are getting treated by some of the FLCC protocol. And I just wanted to chime in on it because people have been giving up because they've had different kinds of reactions on low-dose naltrexone. Is this, is, this the, a, is this a long-haul treatment or an acute COVID treatment? Uh, it's just a reaction to the low-dose naltrexone itself. No, but I mean, are they using, what, why are they using it? What is the- Yeah, yeah. long-haul. Long-haul, long -haul. okay, okay. Or COVID uh, injured. So it's both, it's long-haul and COVID injured. Got it. Or COVID uh, vaccine injured, mm -hmm. rather. Mm-hmm. So FLCC uh, states to start at one milligram and some people that's just still too much for them. Mm -hmm. And they're stating to take it at night because you've got, you know, it inhibits the microglia cells, inhibits interleukin-6. But then it also, uh, as you know, it does a, the endorphin cascade where it blocks endorphins mm -hmm. essentially. And then, mm -hmm. and then your body says, hey, you can't do that. And then in response, your body makes double of the endorphins. Mm -hmm. So when, when, and then it also impacts the toll-like toll receptors, right? But what some people, and it's not a small number, when they take it at night, they're just too sensitive to the endorphin-type reaction. So then it makes them feel jittery. And then in some people, they're stating that it's almost like uh, they're getting muscle rigidity. It's so because weird the, because we used to use naltrexone all the time before, uh, gosh, before the shot became available. We would use it orally. In much higher doses. Do you want Dr. Yo to come back on? No, this is a totally different topic. Okay. Um, and, and I almost, the only side effects I ever saw was some weird interaction with some of the SSRIs. Nobody ever had any. They had sometimes some hepatic stuff, but nobody ever had any constitutional symptoms. Weird, right? Yeah, I've had uh, talks. I don't want to name them, but they are out on Twitter using their real names who speak out about. Uh, COVID and like one of them, she's a doctor who had limes and she had the same complaint. Who was a doctor? She was saying, you know, I she had to drop it down and titrates more slowly and not start at one milligram, but start at 0.5. And in some <laughs> cases, people have to start bless you yeah. subtherapeutic. Subtherapeutic. Hey, I listen. I'm super sensitive to medication. I, I get it. Some people are just more sensitive. What do you think of what the long haul team was saying? Amazing. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually typing in the chat that I I have a recent Lyme diagnosis from jogging out on the trails. So like, they were giving some yeah. really awesome info. Well, and, and very the, this CD8 thing is is uh, something deep in that the, the CD8 and and now you notice how everyone is sort of converging on endotheliitis. You notice how we're hearing that from multiple different sources, whether people have been you know ostracized or not. People are seeing endotheliitis all over the place, and that does seem to be a major major mechanism both of COVID and vaccine injury. And we have to figure out which is worse and you know how to, we got to get the relative risk of these things organized. We just don't know. Ugh, drives me crazy. Do you, think, do you think I was thinking about, uh, I wanted to say one more thing about the LDN, but I was thinking about pacemaker cells and the people that had injuries or are having myocarditis and they have issues with yes. their heart rhythm. Yes. Or they're going from superventricular Superventricular tachycardia back down to Brady. Yeah. And if it's the pacemaker cells that have been impacted because of, like, that was the light bulb going on for me because of the endotheliitis, because it's not the the signal, it's not the, oh gosh, 
help with my brain here. It's not well, the. I can tell you the two two things that are being observed. I've seen a, a th three things. Somebody told me that the the there is something about the AV node blood supply, which is not the sinus node, which is where it's all starting, but the AV node that feeds into the ventricle. There's something about that node that that may make it more vulnerable to endotheliitis. I've not been able to confirm that. I can tell you some of the supraventricular arrhythmias I have seen have all been generated in the high AV node, not in the atria as they normally would be. So it's a weird nodal tachycardia, and the rate is much higher than sort of the run-of-the-mill supraventricular tachycardia. And I'm hearing from cardiologists that they're seeing scarring, and then, of course, the scar can be a source of irritation and, and irregular rhythms. Now, is that scarring ventricular? What, what's the difference? I, I, all this stuff needs to be sorted out. It's terrible. Well, it's terrible, it's, it's terrible that we're not all rowing in the same direction to just figure this all out. Just figure it out. Let's just figure it out, everybody. Let's just get to it and figure out the relative risk. Let's figure out, you know, what the best choices are. Let's uh, let, let's go. Let's do it. This look, COVID is terrible. Did, no disagreement. The question is, is it, you know, is, are there things we might be doing to prevent it that might be making things worse? That's all. Can I chime in on one thing really quick about mm -hmm. the LDN back to that? Yeah. Uh, I've heard that several pharmacists are not telling their patients if they can't take it at night to try it in the morning. It's not going to be as impactful. And hmm. I think there's not as much impact on the toll-like receptors. That makes but sense. But that you'll still get the interleukin uh, benefit and the microglia inhibition. That makes but sense. But you won't have the added energy from the you know, the endorphin blockade. But then also there's one other side effect that uh, I was reading about that somebody I knew said they had and they were being told that they were just uh, stressed out and that wasn't <laughs> true. The the kappa receptor on that yeah. uh, opioid. Yeah, so some, ca people, kappa, some people get euphoria. Yeah, kappa, <laughs> kappa opioid system is a very special system. And it, I don't think, well, I mean, who knows? Naltrexone is a particularly a mu blocker, right? And the and the kappa system may be getting some effect in the crossfire. Maybe it's the upregulation of the endorphins. Maybe it's some blocking of kappa somehow. But kappa kappa is very strange. It has sort of dissociative qualities. It's 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 different. Um, but interesting nonetheless, Christine. Thank you so much. I appreciate you always when you're listening and uh, paying attention and sending me good information. Uh, Nadine's up next here. Let's see what Nadine has to say. Nadine. Oh, hey there. Hey. Um, I have some questions mm -hmm. uh, or one question that you might know. Is there a team of doctors that is kind of studying and working with uh, vaccine injured? It seems like here a lot of the doctors are kind of in denial and, and pushing them around. I've had about 100 in Saskatchewan come forward to me. And I'm wondering, is there a team we can send them to to get evaluated? Is anyone doing that anywhere in the world? <laughs> There's a German team that just published uh, a whole pathology series. Uh, let me see if I can find that very quickly for you. And then the long hauler group. I think this long hauler group is where a lot of this should go because I'm I I feel like at least a significant percentage of the vaccine injury is going to be this endotheliitis and some of the stuff they are studying. Uh, hold on here. Let me see if I can find the study. It's almost coming up. This is a from Heidelberg, University of Heidelberg. The let me see if I can figure out who the lead authors are. Maybe Ram knows. I'm looking at it, Susan. Um, 
Dr. Campbell gets into it a little bit. Ram said to email their nursing team. Okay, how do we do that? Okay, what we should have kept him on. He's he's like, he has good Wi-Fi. Okay, do you want to bring him back in here? <laughs> yeah. Okay. If he can hear us, I don't know. Let's hear yes, him. tell him he can use the same so, link as before. I'll bring him back in. Same link. Right. Peer-reviewed study. I, they are not giving the names on here. Let me just. God darn it. It's nursing at immunotrack.org. Okay. Nursing at immunotrack, T R A C K. With a K. K. He'll be back in a sec. Immunotrack. But it's T R A K, yeah. I M M U N O T R A K dot org. Nursing at immunotrack.org. I can't get the I can't get the name of this thing. Uh, the lead authors, but it is out of Heidelberg, Germany. I will tell you that. And then uh, Dr. Ogender will be just on here in a second to talk. You can about. bring him on the Twitter Spaces. He's on. He's actually on there. He can raise his hand and do that too. What's and that? Come on at the same no, time. Oh, he's bring, on bring, Twitter. He's, he's a, bring him in on the camera. Don't bring him through Spaces. Please. Okay, Vmex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was in on the twi Twitter Spaces. Yeah. So uh, hang on there, Nadine. Let's see what we can get. Uh, Nadine, I'll tell you what. I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on hold, and I'm gonna get somebody else up here while we get. Uh, oh goodness, here's a long hauler. Uh, I tried to I Mint tried Jew? to get him to come back before the question came out. Okay. Mint Jew. Hi there. I hear you. Mint. Can you hear me now? I do. All right, cool. Yeah, sorry, that's my music's name. My name is Kevin. We've actually spoken before on Adam Carolla's in, in yeah. your show. But, hey there. Uh, how's it going? Good. I have a question. Um, it seems to me that everyone has their hypothesis of what this chronic fatigue or mm. post-Lyme, post-COVID mm. is, and it looks like doctors kind of come to it from whatever background they're looking at prior to it is kind of what they bring into the the fray. So for example, Dr. John Chia works with enteroviruses. I saw him and he was dead certain that my all of my symptoms were caused by enteroviruses. Right. And then hearing the other team of talking about microclots and uh Yogendra uh, and, and Patterson have their thing going on. So one of the things I just want to voice is my frustration that it seems that nobody nobody is really coordinating Right and uh, right. looking at each other's and, and, studies. And, 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 and what you're talking about is this phenomenon in medicine is that when you're a hammer, the whole world's a nail. Exactly. That is precisely. a very common phenomenon in medicine. And, yeah, and I don't, I don't know if there's any way to fix that, if that's just human nature of how we, you know, look yeah. at uh, how we discover things. It I, seems that's us. People have but, occasionally tried to find ways to get integrated science better get science better integrated it just does not seem possible right. Uh, right and my guess is as more and more of this information comes i mean this is just the process as more comes out more will start to get shared they'll see overlaps and we'll start to again come into focus which of these things are 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 you know sort of uh, common features of everything uh, yeah what could be discarded and what can be included yeah, and yeah. you were kind of talking i i have a question and then i'll take my answer off the air. Mm -hmm. Are there any teams looking for biomarkers that would indicate a endothelial fibrosis? So a bunch of scar tissue and kind of a more, uh, not to what, scare what everybody you, in here, yeah. but more of a permanent Yeah, what are you experiencing? Problem. What are you experiencing? So I, I had COVID in, uh, presumably, I never tested positive for anything, mm. antibodies or PCR, mm. but I got the, the, I lost my taste of, uh, or sense of taste and smell in, March 2020, and I just didn't get better for a couple mm. months. 
it was really bizarre. I tried to exercise through it like I would with any normal mm. uh, cold or flu, and and that just walloped me. And then a couple months later, I started getting all these neuropathies, pots. Um, I remember people complaining about that. Did you tremors, have you had, have you had any nerve the, biopsies or anything? Any pathology specimens done, dude? My my neuro, uh, neurologist won't do it. Oh, we she talked about this last time, didn't we? Didn't small I? Small fiber neuropathy. Yeah, yeah it's been I, I, two my, or three years. My head goes there immediately. You know, a serial nerve biopsy or something, just because you put it under the microscope, it answers questions. You know, that's that's what you. Find. Yeah, they did MRIs and, and uh, CT scans and all that stuff, mm. and and blood tests, common blood tests. I did the the Patterson panel. Everything looks pretty normal except for kind of a low CD4 count, which isn't fun. But hmm. I mean, I could talk about this for hours. But well, let, my, let my me question is, go ahead. Is the endothelial? Yeah, let me get. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Good. I'm gonna have you again to come right in. There you are. So two questions. A. Uh, once there is endothelial inflammation are we seeing shutdown of arterioles are we seeing scarring of any type it's a good question uh doctor and i just heard your listener just now um in the comments yeah. so it's very interesting what you know one of the things we we always talk about is up doesn't necessarily mean bad down doesn't necessarily mean good one of the things we're seeing with with some of the patients that are having um maybe I, I am always very cautious about using the term cured, but actually having improvement in symptoms and a quality of life is we start to see some of mm. these inflammatory, pro-inflammatory macrophage uh, markers go down like the Rantes, interferon gamma. But very interestingly, we'll see elevations in some of the vascular markers, uh, the VEGF and SCD40L. They actually start to go up, but mm. the patients will say, hey, we're, we're feeling better. And that's because we're suspecting mm. we've, you know, I, I almost look at it like you're putting out the fire, but you have to regrow the forest, right? And I think a lot of these patients, especially that first wave of patients back in March and April of 2020, by the time they even got tested with us or other groups or even started any therapeutics, you're talking about 18 to 24 months of them being chronically inflamed. Um, the question is, yeah. okay, we put out the fire, how much damage has already been done? Um, and I think that is a sort of a conversation, a difficult conversation to have be, to have with these patients. Is there a limitation I, I, in terms of I the therapeutics that we have? Well, look, uh, if this is happening in the brain, which it is, um, there is damage, right? Much, much I, I just liken it to CTE. It's like, it's like a head injury. It's like, it felt like a head injury when I had it. It felt like somebody hit me in the head and the brain, particularly under the age of 80, let's say, and particularly when you're younger, extremely resilient even you know there's the, all that early research on shrinkage of the brain is shrinking brain no, no that's all glial cells for the most part they regrow things get better the brain heals even when it's smaller it adjusts it, it this idea of you know brain injury necessitating neurological symptoms or progression just not so not so it, it worry you worry about it and it's certainly a risk factor for those things but uh it, we don't have to be in a total panic about you just think about it as a head injury. People live nice, long, healthy lives after a head injury. Uh, it's very, very similar to that. Uh, the other question was, why can't we share info better? Why all these different camps? Um, I think beta hemolytic strep or something came up a minute ago as the cause of, or uh, what was it? He, what did he say? Some other bacterial organism was the cause. Uh, is How do we get everybody together and get the overlapping data together? 
It's a good question, Dr. Dre. It's some, something we've talked about uh, amongst our group. There's there's more of a competition than collaboration in this, not only long COVID space, but just COVID in general. Um, you know, I think everyone has whatever motives or they want prominence. Or, hey, I'm not going to sit there and comment. We can, we can speculate. But, you know, the interesting thing about our group, I think a lot of times people see Bruce and I kind of on, on podcasts and kind of being on the forefront of this, talking about our program is we're actually, our collaboration is huge. Um, it's, you know, we don't treat, we're not writing prescriptions. We are really just looking at data and looking at patterns and suggesting, I think this looks like this. I think we need to do a diagnostic mm-hmm. testing to further confirm it. Because you can't look at, you can't look at one side of kind of or a couple of them and say, oh yeah, you have long COVID or you have this. It's saying suggestive, let's do some confirmatory tests, whether it's getting immune subsets, looking at S1, whether it's doing further further testing. So I think, yes, I think maybe in the social media space, there does seem to be some sort of competition, which our group has talked to everyone. We read the research. You know, one of the interesting things coming out there is the whole theory about, is there a replicating virus? Um, there's another group that's, you know, they're looking at some of the uh, anticoagulants. Um, we might disagree. We might professionally and respectfully disagree. Um, and I think that's that's mutual across the board. But I think sometimes so a lot of this is sort of pushed out in social media when in when in essence we are kind of all in, in really working together. And I think a lot of people do have the best interest of patients and the general public. Um, but I, I just again, as I mentioned earlier, just not letting biases and, and not just, you know, well, one of the concerns I have is everyone, you know, we, we lose our principles of medicine and just let's not automatically suggest that it is all due to long COVID, there could be other things taking place. We don't want to miss cancer screening, um, patient doing full cardiac respiratory workup. Once we rule everything out, then we can start looking at some of this inflammatory uh, persistent issues that are taking place. So I think it's very, very important that patients get proper care and not just jump to jump to the conclusion um, that they, you know, this is all S1 driven or Lyme or anything like that. We have to be very cautious and still keep our principles of medicine and how we practice. All right, let's get a caller up here. This is uh, Kaysville. Let's get her up here. Kaysville Aggie, I think it said. There you are. Hey. Hey there. How's it going? Good. What's happening? Uh, a long time in the list. Well, not long time recently, more recently now, but a long time back in the old days. I remember in the 80s listening to you. Wow. Or maybe early 90s. Way back. Uh, so you're old, like but, <laughs> a, a little old. I'm a dentist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've, I've kind of seen a, this from an interesting um, aspect in that so I'm, I'm in Salt Lake City, and my office is right below the, uh, the major medical center in, this, in the state of Utah. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of um, other healthcare professionals from the center in my practice. Uh, and one thing that I saw right off the bat or that people would come, other doctors or nurses would come and talk to me about was things they were concerned about, but that they didn't dare talk to their fellow um, professionals about things that they did not agree with. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was this uh, really just massive fear to speak out 
This is still going and, on. This still goes yeah, on. And that, and that was from very early on. Yeah, very I know. early oh, on. Oh, listen, that's why we yeah. got into such a mess. And with masking, and I, I can remember sitting in class in, in second year dental school mm -hmm. talking about uh, masking and why we're wearing a mask. And never was it ever said to stop respiratory viruses. Right. That was the, never the point. Right. Um, Bloodborne pathogens our focus, and then also keeping the surgical site clean. Yep. Nothing to do with respiratory viruses in, in any way, shape, or form. Correct. So I, I, it's just very, very early on, I started, I've heard you say the same things. Like, what is going on here? Mm -hmm. and, I'm a, and I'm a dentist, right? So I'm not, I'm not an internist. I'm, but I see that, that where I see that's different is I see these people every six months. Yeah. And even through the pandemic, I, I did not close my practice. I, we canceled unnecessary work, but we went to work and mm -hmm. waited for people to, to call with problems, with pain. You know, these mm -hmm. people couldn't go to the emergency room for dental issues. All right. they're going to get is an antibiotic and sent out the door. Well, then if, and, if, and then they, they, if they even get in the door during all that. Exactly. And, 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 and then they have to deal with days of intense pain until an antibiotic might help. Um, but that's besides the point. There's so much I could talk about. The main thing I wanted to ask you about or kind of discuss is uh, I very frequently as we're going through um, our normal exams, I'll have patients want to ask me about certain things that they won't ask their healthcare provider because of the same environment that, that, I talked about earlier that's amongst the professionals, patients feel the same thing. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, I remember one in particular, she had uh, the vaccine and shortly after she broke out in hives that they could not figure out. Uh, and they couldn't, the only way they could control was on steroids, mm -hmm. like constant steroids. And then they tried to transition her to, um, like Benadryl. Uh, Benadryl would help, but it wouldn't quite manage it like it needed to. And she was looking all over and, and nobody could ever give her an answer of what was going on. They couldn't find any allergy or any reaction. And she would ask them and say, well, could this be the vaccine? And immediately it was always absolutely 100% no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when I saw her, I said, you know, you know, I, I'm a dentist, take that for what it is. But my understanding is there's no way to give informed consent in this circumstance. And we know there's that. no way. Yeah. yeah, there's no way for them to be able to tell her for sure. No, that's not it. You know, we're, we're just undermining and alienating so many people. And it's it's really frustrating. Uh, well, I'm with you. It's why I've been doing these these uh, interviews, uh, particularly on Wednesday. We bring in people in and trying to get at the material that has been suppressed. So I just yeah. quickly pulled up uh, cytokine production and CDA T cells uh, and the peripheral blood mononuclear cells in uh, idiopathic urticaria. So hives from CD8 yeah. suppression. So there you go. So yeah. COVID, I, I've seen hives from COVID too. So it makes sense to me that it would also yeah. be something from the vaccine. So there is there's a yeah, she, possible she mechanism. Yeah. One other one, though, this is very interesting. This is just, just uh, last week. A mm. um, patient that I've had for several years, young, healthy patient, uh, female. She was 
pregnant during the pandemic. And now her child is one year old. And uh, she was showing me pictures of her and we were talking. And I could know I noticed immediately her, her left eye was, you know, not is to the left, not centered. And, and she could tell I was looking. She said her eye, she's had a problem with her eye. And I said, well, what, what, do they know what's going on? And they said, well, actually, we're just finding out that they, they think that she had an in utero stroke. Um, and this is a one-year-old child. And um, they had no idea at first as she, as she's gotten older, they started, her eyes started to deviate. Mm -hmm. And then as she started to crawl her whole left side, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, she basically belly crawls mm -hmm. and has to, try and get her left leg and left arm mm. to work. Goodness. So she told me this and she said an in uterine stroke. And I said, Oh my goodness, that has to be rare. Mm. And she said, yes. And I don't know if this is right. I think I could have misunderstood. And she said, um, it could be as rare as one in a million or one case in the country a year. Mm. Is, could that be correct? That it's, seemed un crazy to me. I'm going to look it up in, so she was vaccinated when she was pregnant? Okay, so yes, uh, I'm getting to Susan that. jumping right to so, it. I'm, yeah, on, so, I'm on this. Uh, and, and this individual, she's a medical researcher and has done cancer research in the past. And now, she, now she's not currently in the field. She's at home with her daughter. But so I wanted to broach this subject. So I said, huh, I'm curious. Are you vaccinated? And she said, oh, yes. And she immediately, her next sentence was, I don't want to blame the vaccine. Mm. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I said, I, I'm not saying that. I said, I just talk to a lot of people every day. Uh, and I see, I've heard a lot of different things. And I'm just curious. I'm just trying to understand. Yep. And she said, yes, I'm vaccinated. I was vaccinated in the third trimester. Mm. Interesting. Uh, one in 3,000 to one in 4,000 is the incidence. So not nearly. Not one in a million, but we'll see if it changes, you know, with everybody being vaccinated. We'll, we'll see. And then, and then the really crazy thing is there, there are no rush seemingly to differentiate COVID post COVID injury versus vaccine injuries. They, they, this is not being right. actively worked on. So right. that's what bothers me. But, but, but like and what she, she told me she had, she had not had COVID. Mm. And, well, but time. I mean, again, the in utero strokes happen, uh, whether it's vaccine right. related or not. We'll see if it goes up after a while. All right, my friend, thank you for calling in. Appreciate so it very much. Somebody hey, asked earlier if, if you had the vaccine and you felt injured, uh, Ram, you were going to answer, you know, where to where to contact the nurses. Yeah, we, we, we are looking at we've been looking at this for the past 18 months, patients to having some post vaccine complications. Um, you know, it's interesting. We, there's a lot of discussion on, but um, there we go. So I was just I was just saying before I just uh, lost you for a second, Drew. Um, there's yeah. been a lot of interesting discussion lately about the the myocarditis and the pericarditis, um, some of the cardiac yeah. inflammation and the vascular inflammation yeah. um, after the yeah. vaccine. You know, in, interesting. What we're seeing is is really we're not seeing those patients in our program because uh, I think a lot of those patients they're more acute. They're ending up in the emergency room or immediately with their primary care doctor. We're seeing the patients that three to six months after um, after the vaccination uh, that they're experiencing more neurological 
Um, so they're coming yeah. to us with the fatigue, the, the tinnitus, uh, the neuropathy, peripheral neuropathy. Um, some of them with with POTS, which you know, I think it's it's got it's really an autonomic dysfunction, in my opinion. What what POTS is yeah. more less in the cardiac stuff. So we're really approaching sort of months, maybe even a year down down um, after vaccination, and we're seeing that after the first, second, the booster. Um, that's what we've been seeing some of these some of these issues. So um, what, what's interestingly, we're we're detecting the S one protein. Um, we can't tell, like you know, I know someone just um, the the dentist just on said, well, that the one patient said, I absolutely know I didn't have COVID. There's really no way that we can say 100% definitively you did not have COVID. You could have a subclinical course of it. You may not have made antibodies. It might have worn off. We've done what we've done in our in our vaccine paper, which we're resubmitting it. We went through a little bit. We got some feedback from the peer review process. Um, so probably in the next week or so, I'll, I'll have that paper out. Um, we screened the patient using uh, negative nucleocapsid and the T-detect, mm. which still is not 100%. That is limitations of the studies. But um, basically what we are seeing is, is we are detecting the S1 protein. We did sequence it um, in, in, the, in the papers. Bruce and, Bruce and our team did that. Um, so that's what we are we're addressing. Now, interestingly, you know, again, we get this question quite a bit. Are you guys using CCR5 antagonists or statins? Hey, so some patients, all it was was uh, I just did a consultation, a, a pilot from Europe, uh, major airlines. I'm not going to say which airlines. He's been flying. He, had, he got the booster a few months ago, maybe about eight months ago, and had severe neuropathy, tinnitus, uh, headaches, fatigue. Um, we, we just put him on a statin. We recommended a statin and um, I believe a... I, I think it was either Plavix or uh, an aspirin. I can't remember exactly. And he said in six to eight weeks, he felt better. And this is someone that had vaccine complications. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, it's, it all it all depends on the patients. It depends on the history. It depends on the comfort level of their physician. It also depends on the country that they're in and what medications and things are available. So, again, there's no like this one thing to go and let's go get these, uh, you know, this one magic drug. I also do want to say, though, there are patients out there that have been through our program, that have maybe gotten tested, that have not responded to the medications. There's no one in clinical medicine that has 100% success rate. I always tell patients this. If anyone says they have 100% success rate, they should be selling used cars. So again, you know that, Dr. Drew, right. we don't have that. Right. And we do have no. some patients that got had issues after the vaccine that have not responded to steroids or CCR5 mm-hmm. antagonists. And we're like, okay, IVIG, there is um, hyperbaric treatment. I mean, there's so many different things, right? We don't really have quite a, an understanding. And what we've been doing and bang your head against the wall is saying we need more help. We need more focus yes. on this yes. group of patients. Um, and rather than it, saying, you know, I think it's, there's it's, this- it's weird to me there's not an urgent, you know, this is the part that I'm confused about again, why our system isn't gearing up to manage this as opposed to pretending it's not happening and focusing on more vaccinated people. It just seems, it seems, let's keep vaccinating the risk population. I'm all about it, but let's understand what's going on everywhere else first, maybe. Yeah, I think we just need more more focus and research into it and just saying, mm-hmm. look, it's not, it's not an anti-vax, pro-vax. We, we've never had medicine like this. We always ask questions. People always have side effects. Risks the government just censored of those, uh, right of, the, of those vaccines. I mean, what I mean, I don't know what the percentage is. I, I say rare or not rare. Mm. I mean, we can have the debate. I don't have any data to support that. And I think that's where yeah. now you have 
one group of patient people out there saying everything is caused, everything is the vaccine, everything is all yep. sorts of problems. Yep. And another group saying it's not, yep. has nothing to do with it. These patients, it's all in your head, go away. That's a little bit, we're yeah. somewhere in between. Let's come together. Let's try to understand and help these people. Let's, let's worry about helping people. How about that? Not worry about who's yeah. right, who's wrong. But uh, all right, my friend, uh, as always, as I said, great to see you. And but just, can you give them the email address again for if they have- For the nurses? If they want to reach yeah, out. Yeah, so our nursing team is, is nursing at immuno, I-M-M-U-N-O-T-R-A-K.org. Or you can just go to covidlonghollows.com. You'll just see our research, the work that we're doing. Uh, and then if it's something that you feel like you might want to explore, get more information, you can just reach out to us um, and get Caleb, the testing done. Caleb, did you catch done. that? Can you, can, you, can you put it up there on the screen? It, yes, I'll actually I'll also put it up on the website too. The, the nursing one? The long one? Uh, I, I, I didn't type it down, so I don't want to type it incorrectly, but if can they you, go to the COVID long Can you find the home. link on COVID long Yeah, yeah the, I, yeah, the okay. email is on the website. The email is on the website. And patients, right. their physicians, right. I think it's also very important that their physicians are also included in those emails too. We're happy to talk about the research and things that we're doing with them. Okay. Well, very impressive. And as always, I, I learn something every time I talk to you guys. So uh, as always, thank you and stay in touch, okay? Sounds good. Thanks, Dr. Drew. Thanks for Thanks coming for back me. on. All right. Good to see you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Uh, all right. I got to wrap everything up here. We appreciate the calls. We appreciate the participation. I appreciate uh, the long hauler guys coming in and giving us an update. Yeah. If, if you know, I would recommend people, I've learned a ton uh, talking to all these different people. We're going to get repeats. We're going to get Paul Alexander back and Ryan Cole back and see if there's much the way we bring the long hauler guys back. I mean, more information. There's more things to learn. I, I learned a little more about the physiological observations today i knew some of this stuff was in the making last time i talked to them now it's more clearly uh the case well i appreciate that youtube is letting us keep it up and we have rumble and we have platforms that allow people to watch you but there was a really significant piece of data here today which was about the cd8 cells and uh that is a that is a very concerning piece of information and uh i i have no doubt that it's contributing to the all-cause mortality problem my concern is, though, that's not the only part of the story. Obviously, the lockdown, the lack of screening, and then I'm worried about the uh, Hanging with us. All that stuff was way over my head. So, Well, good. You like that. Yeah, I do. So hanging with us, and we'll try to keep uh, the data coming. And, uh, and I appreciate our guests. fans and for listening. Have, uh, and listening Lieutenant Colonel closely. Teresa Long coming in on December 21st. We have Asim Malhatra. You've seen him in Great Britain making... A lot of noise in the parliament there. January 3rd, Megan Kelly. You forgot Steve Kirsch. Steve Kirsch coming in next week, uh, right after uh, Teresa Long. Uh, Byron Brindle, and then Ryan Cole returns. And we're, Paul Alexander got him on the schedule again today, too. So, uh, And December 22nd is my birthday, so uh, buy my favorite package at genucell.com. Okay. Or get me some gold. How about that? And mixed oh, okay. into that calendar will be some caller shows as well that just aren't on the schedule yet. Yes, of course, of course. In fact, the next the next show will be a strict caller show, which is next Tuesday, the twentieth. Correct? Yep, I yep. believe so. Everybody, okay. We will see you then on Tuesday, three o'clock Pacific. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. 
Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. 